0: From our studios in Sydney, Australia, I'm Dan Barrett, and this is Screenwatching. This week on the podcast, vroom, 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 my co-host Simon Foster and I are getting hyper-masculine with the latest in the Fast and Furious franchise, F9. We're also delving into a set of half-hour comedies all fronted by women, with Rose Byrne in Physical, Helen Hunt in Blindspotting, and New Zealander Rose Matafeo in UK comedy Starstruck. Simon will chat with physical creator and writer Annie Weissman, and we ask the question, it's 2021. Should you still watch the Lethal Weapon movies? A topical conversation to be sure. <coughs> cough, cough. This is the Screen Watching Podcast. Let's deep dive in.
1: This is not like TV only battle. Television! Teacher! Mother! Secret lover.
0: What, that's it? That's your movie? Well, I said that I had an idea for it. Good afternoon, good evening and good night. You are listening to Screen Watching. My name is Dan Barrett and I'm joined here by my co-host Simon Foster.
1: I'm doing very well. When you were talking about the whole uh, masculine men doing masculine things, I thought you were building up to my introduction. Clearly, that wasn't the the case. Good to see you and good to talk to everyone. Hope you're well. And I am going to make a big deal out of this, Dan Barrett. I know you didn't want me to, but a very happy birthday uh, for 24 hours ago. The man is aging well, and I just wanted to acknowledge that out there in the podcast sphere.
0: That's it. My sweet 16th over the last couple of days. It's it's been a big week for me.
1: Yeah, good for you, mate. Happy birthday. Happy, happy birthday. We have got a busy
0: show today. Should we get straight into it? Yeah, look, quite frankly, I don't want to dilly-dally because I need to know all about the new Fast and the Furious.
1: Y'all ever thought about the wild missions we've been on? We've taken out planes, trains, tanks. I'm not going to even think about the submarines.
2: And now we got cars flying in the air. Who is he? Jacob is Dom's brother. It's been a long time, though little brother. You always say never turn your back on family,
1: but you turned your back on me. We're back. Fast and Furious 9 is in cinemas. It's been delayed, oh God, over a year now, which is crazy. I'm going to run through the plot very quickly, and if it sounds like I've borrowed this from Wikipedia, it's because I have. Um, having seen the movie, there's really not that much to talk about in terms of plot-wise, but bear with me. Dom Toretto, played by the wonderful Vin Diesel, very subtle actor. He's leading a very quiet life off the grid with uh, Michelle Rodriguez, his wife Letty, and his son, Little Brian. Little Brian, oh brother. Um, but they know that danger always lurks just over the peaceful horizon. This is terrible. This time, that threat will force Dom to confront he- the sins of his past. As is always the case with these Fast and Furious films, um, there's a family element in them. Like, it's all about family and bonding. Um so he's got to save those that he loves the most, which is what he does in most of these movies, um, his crew all joined together, some of them coming back from the dead, not literally, but figuratively from the last few films, um, to stop a world-shattering plot led by the most skilled assassin, who writes this stuff, and high-performance driver they've ever encountered, a man who also happens to be Dom's forsaken brother, Jacob. Now, Jacob is played by John Cena, um, who really leads with the chin in this film. Um, he does a lot of chin acting, a lot of grimacing, um, He's He's got a constant frown on his face. Let's just say that the Fast and Furious Nine at one hundred and forty minutes somehow manages to be both loud and obnoxious and quite boring. Um, There's this very strange sort of meta line that goes through this, and by that I mean they're always everyone in the film acknowledges acknowledges that it's particularly stupid, um, and yet they still persist with these very stupid acts. Um, We remember in some past Fast and Furious films how a bank vault has been dragged through the streets of I think it was Rio. in this one, I guess in answer to a lot of fan questions, a lot, of, a sort of a fan theory that the only place they haven't gone is outer space. They go to outer space. It's utterly ridiculous. Um, I know that there are some people, and by the box office takings. I would suggest quite a few people who enjoy these movies. I find them so insulting to the intelligence and um, not only in the fact that they defy physics and logic and anything to do with the real world, but then they sort of uh, delve in these real world emotions of family and and, um, uh, past and legacy and all those sort of things. Um, And none of it rings true for a second. Now, I'm not going to these movies to find some... Uh, sort of great dialogue about uh, any of those themes, but I need it to be based just a little bit, just a little bit in the real world. Otherwise, you're watching just a cartoon. That's the other problem I had with these films and that I had with Hobbs and Shaw before it. They really disrespect the the history of stuntmen in Hollywood. Everything in this is CGI. There's barely a car spinning around a corner or a stunt that's done that um, is done in the real world. It's all done with sometimes very tinny special effects. So... Um, Charlize Theron returns, if that's a plus for anyone, and she really chews the scenery like only the very best Oscar winners can. Um, and the rest of the cast, Jordana Brewster turns up. These are all names that will be familiar to Fast and Furious fans, uh, of past years gone by, but in every other respect, this is just a stupid, stupid, stupid movie, um, that I wouldn't even say leave your brain at the door for this one, I'd say leave it in the car park back home, maybe put it in the back seat of your vehicle before you go in there, because... Um, you just don't need any kind of uh, connection to reality to like or watch these films. So I'm sorry, Fast and Furious fans. This isn't my cup of tea, clearly. Um, F9 is just, can F off.
0: Yeah, word on mouth for this one has been incredibly bad. So it's only just launching in the US and Australia in this past week in China where it actually debuted a couple of weeks ago. It was a really huge box office for that first weekend, as you'd expect from a Fast and the Furious film, but it just dropped right off a cliff straight afterwards. So lots of people yeah. were looking there as to whether it was a sign that China's love affair with Hollywood cinemas may be over, but I think this might just be the case of a film that's just not very good and word's getting
1: out. It's directed by Justin Lin, who's done some Fast and Furious work in the past, but um, in this one, it, it looks so dull. It's got this real sort of... Um, veneer about it and 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 lack of sort of uh, interesting camera angles and interesting camera action that makes it that, that, that doesn't shoot the stunts very well um certainly doesn't shoot the actors very well uh and there's so much uh, macho posturing and and sort of alpha male celebration in this that it just leaves a really ugly taste in the mouth so everything about f9 for me was um was was a dud i'm sure it'll bring people back to the cinemas uh, in the western countries and 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 I know that a lot of the chains here in Australia have literally given over their whole um, weekend trade to this. There's there's sessions after sessions of this, and other films like Cruella and other major releases are quite placed too are being pushed down to two or three sessions a day. Um, So everyone's counting on it to make a lot of money, and I'm glad it gave people in the crew and some extras, some some cash along the way, Uh, but there's really no reason for this to exist at all. Okay, well, that sounds scathing. That's the very definition of scathing right there, Simon. That's what a scathe is, yes, exactly. Hey,
0: look, let's move on to something that's a little bit less manly and instead take a look at the new Apple TV series called Physical.
1: What's up, lady? Sorry. You ready to do this thing? Now you've done it. She sees what a mess you are. Actually, I feel better than I have been in a long time. Where are you going? Ow. I've been doing aerobics classes. You should check it. You might like it. And after just one class, you can feel it happening. You becoming you again.
0: Sheila Rubin is a housewife in the early 80s. She's married to an academic who has political aspirations, but just lost an opportunity for university tenure. Sheila's got an eating disorder, which inspires her to secretly hide away in cheap motel rooms to eat cake. And by the end of episode one, she discovers a new lifestyle trend that cuts deep to the core of what she's looking for in life. It's aerobics classes at the local shopping center. Three years later, Sheila will be starring in the next evolution of the craze, the VHS exercise tape market. This is a fantastic setting for a TV series. It's a really unique setting for a show and deeply interesting as an era to explore. And Rose Byrne's incredible in the show as Sheila, and the show looks fantastic with Craig Gillespie of I, Tonya fame directing. Rose Byrne is so good, and it looks so great, and the show's setting is so smart that it might fool you into thinking the show is actually much better than it is, instead of being an exceptionally hollow efforts. The inspiration for the show is clearly Jane Fonda, her interest in aerobics and her spearheading the VHS aerobics boom of the early 80s. Fonda only got involved in doing the Jane Fonda workout tapes as a way to generate income for her then-husband's political aspirations, and that's Tom Hayden, who was one of the Chicago Seven. And while the story of Fonda is fascinating, there's nothing really interesting going on in a series. It's as though there's an interesting sketch of a series without any of the colour being filled in. And as an example, there's one scene which has the workout instructor that Sheila's meeting telling her that she needs to stop wearing ballet shoes to class. She needs proper shoes. Now, the reason why Sheila's wearing ballet shoes is because sneakers for women weren't really a thing in the early 80s. It's because of the aerobics exercise boom led by Jane Fonda that companies like Reebok started producing sneakers for women, the main being Reebok's freestyle fitness sneaker. Now, that's a really interesting detail, but to watch this show, the only reason Sheila is wearing the ballet shoes is because that's just what she's wearing to class. Three episodes of the series debut today on Apple TV+, and by the end of the three episodes, viewers will have no clearer understanding of what Sheila wants in life, who she actually is, or why aerobics are even so appealing to her. The framework of the show is great, and again, Rose Byrne is magnificent here, but everybody, especially the viewers, deserve better.
1: Okay, I'm going to weigh in a little bit on this one. I found this one of the most binge-worthy shows I've seen in a long time. I got through with thanks to the Apple TV people, all the series, and it's a... it's... And while I agree that on the surface it celebrates all that is rather shallow about uh, uh, 80s culture in America, I also found that uh, Sheila's character had a great deal of complexity to her. I found Um, most importantly the inner monologue which is used to perfection in the film she's got these terrible self-loathing issues and you hinted at that when she goes to the hotel rooms and 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 um, hits the cake and the hamburgers pretty heavily Um, she's struggling with who she is and what impact she can make on the world while in the shadow of this kind of ditzy very irresponsible idealistic husband Um, and I think Rose Byrne captures that perfectly for me there is such energy in this Production that Craig Gillespie has brought. He's the hair apparent to to what Paul Thomas Anderson does. He's got this amazing grasp of camera language and editing that that just gives his cinema and his television work this propulsive sort of viewing, this compelling sort of forward thrust. And I think Rose Byrne matches it. I think as the the series goes on, um, there's enough revelations about Sheila's character and what she represents to the clashing of um the women's movement coming out of the late 70s the idealism of the 60s and hitting up crash bang into that um capitalism reagan era gotta make money um sort of american way of life uh, of of the early 80s um for me this i thought the first episode was of this one was one of the best first episodes i've seen in a long long time um and i've got to say physical is is must watch tv the likes of which i haven't seen for ages so i'm a huge fan of physical Simon,
0: I assure you we are not going to agree on this one, but let's maybe hear about what's going on in From the Vine. I was
2: born in Archerenza, Italy. What's this? I was standing there. I had this epiphany. Oh my God, men and their epiphanies.
1: One of my favourite actors ever to stand before the the camera is uh, Joey Pantaleone. Joey Pantaleone, Joey Pants, as he's become known over the years, um, he's always generally relegated to that scene-stealing support role. You'll remember him as Francis Fratelli in The Goonies, one of the bad guys. You'll remember him as uh, the crazy assassin from uh, The Sopranos who was just a chilling, chilling character. Um, He's got a number of films under his belt, things like The Matrix and and a whole lot of movies where he plays these vibrant support characters. He gets a chance to be the lead in From the Vine, which is based on the novel Finding Marco by Kenneth Canio Canchalara, um he plays a, a a businessman a toronto-based businessman who has a sort of crisis of conscience he's his mentor dies um he doesn't know if the company that he's heading up is headed in the direction that he wants it to go in uh, so he decides to give up the corporate life Cash in all his super and head back to Italy to the beautiful Acerenza region of uh, Basilicata in in uh, southern Italy um, and take over try to revive his his grandfather's vineyard um, and what you get is this kind of fantasy existence uh, where he brings the vines back to life, revives this small town, um, brings a whole lot of focus back on the goodness of life, and that helps him uh, find out exactly where he wants to be in this world. There's a little bit of sort of uh, rich white man's fantasy element to this film, but it's also about understanding you know, those great sort of themes of chasing your dreams, um, getting back in touch with your true self, getting back in touch with your heritage, there's that word again. And 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 what you have is this very sweet, almost whimsical story, um, which has some sort of magical realism elements in it, which sort of speaks to the history of some classic Italian cinema. There's scenes where he talks to the vines, and quite frankly, the vines talk back. Um, there are elements of of, you know, the st- the concrete statues in this town start to move and start to look at him when he walks past. These were all real surprises when I saw the film. Wasn't expecting it. Isn't exactly sort of played up or, or um, taken advantage of by the filmmaker, a young guy called Sean Cisterna, but um, it does sort of give the film this this sort of whimsical uh, light touch that that makes the journey of uh, Marco Gentile, played by Joey Pants, Um, a really sort of sweet one. Um, It looks beautiful. This part of the world just looks gorgeous on film, and um, that's taken advantage of. So while this isn't a very important film, not even a very deep film, it is a very sweet movie to watch, and I've got to say Joey Pants in a lead role is, is just fantastic. Yeah, look, I love Joey Pants, and this definitely looks like something that I haven't seen him
0: do before, so I'm very keen to give it a gander.
1: I was very fortunate to, to have spent 20-odd minutes with, with Joey Pants earlier this week and had a chat to him. Go and see that video. He's such a, a sweet, funny man. Not at all like the, the nasty <laughs> characters he's made a career out of, out of uh, bringing to life. Um, on our YouTube channel, go to Screen Watching on the YouTube channel. Um, I've also already shared that to the... Uh, facebook page so you can uh, go and see it there um he's definitely worth listening to because he's got some very he, he can be very political at times he can be very funny at times um and it's just great to see that intelligence sort of brought to life in this character and in the interview that we we captured with him
0: now i'd like to have a chat with you about the new tv show starstruck When people see us together, it's like one of those, you know, weird animal friendship shows where you see a Labrador and a Hedgehog with friends and everyone's like, oh, that's not right. That's weird. But okay, if it works for them, great. People don't think that. Obviously,
2: you would say that you're the fucking Labrador.
0: New Zealand comedian Rose Matafeo stars in and co-wrote the new UK comedy series Starstruck. Endlessly charismatic, Matafeo stars as Jessie, a young woman on the cusp of her 30s, living in London. She works in a cinema part-time and also works as a nanny. One New Year's Eve, she is dragged to a nightclub party by her best friend, and she has a very drunken meet-cute with a guy that she later goes home with. The chemistry between us is fantastic, he's just as funny and charismatic as she is, and the next morning she wakes up to a very nice apartment and discovers what she's done. She's gone home with a movie star. Now, she hadn't recognized him the night before, but in a harsh light of sobriety, she realizes what's gone on. The rest of the six-part first season takes place over the next year as their paths keep crisscrossing. They're constantly in each other's minds, but it's a year of missed moments. Everything about this sounds like the sort of rom-coms that fueled cinema from the early 90s onward. It especially seems reminiscent of Notting Hill, and that's perfectly fair, because it is all of that. But what makes the show absolutely pop is the charisma of Matafeo and Nykish Patel. Matafeo is clearly the lead of the show, and does all the heavy lifting in the program, but the two are dynamite on screen together. As a viewer, it desperately hurts that they can't find a way to connect properly, and that's exactly what you want from a rom-com. It's incredibly base and unsophisticated, but we're all party for this kind of on screen romantic fairy tale business. It's what's driven storytelling since we were telling stories in caves. Now, on top of the incredibly witty script, the show is also a really good character examination of Matafeo's Jessie. She's a character that's been constantly let down by the availability of men in her life. None of them have ever had that spark that matches her own, and the same can be said for her career. Part of why she's been let down in life is that she's a character who treasures comfort and never steps out there to try to do any better. The first season of the show makes all of that very clear for the audience. The fun of future seasons will be watching her take steps to actively seek satisfaction from a world befitting of what she has to offer her. Star Starstruck is huge fun, it's smart, it's funny, and it's a great crowd pleaser. And you can find the series streaming as of this week on ABC iview.
1: I'm a big fan of Rose. I know her from her season on Taskmaster. I know her from the movie Baby Done, which I didn't love, but I certainly loved her in it. Um... Yeah, she's a great talent, and this looks like something worth watching. So uh, thank you, buddy. That's a good write-up.
0: Yeah, so in the US, it just dropped on HBO Max in the last couple of days, and there's been an interesting conversation happening in the half-hour comedy space over the last couple of months where people have been going gaga over this HBO Max show called Hacks. Now, that's a show that isn't available in Australia, and there's no word yet when we're going to get it. It'll come, but, you know, we just don't know when exactly. But people are going crazy for this show, That show wound up and it just sort of seems though all the heat from Hacks has since moved over a week later to Starstruck because it's just dropped on HBO Max and people are discovering it there as they're looking for something to fill that Hacks void in their life. Hmm. I'll admit, I got started watching the first episode. I didn't expect very much from it. Within the next day or two, I'd blitz through all six episodes. Like it is just such a, it's television crack. It is so charming and fun. There's a reason why everyone's talking about the show right now. And we get it in Australia this coming
1: Tuesday. I believe it drops on the ABC iView. I was able to have a look during the week at a film about a true Australian icon. It's called Valerie Taylor playing with sharks.
2: Back in the
0: 50s, there was so much marine life, you learnt how to hunt. The first lady spearfishing championships, there were seven women. There was about 700
2: men. And I was very good at it.
1: The attitude was take what you want and never make a difference. Just kill, kill, kill. Directed by Sally Aitken, one of our best documentarians, playing with sharks, uh, chronicles the life of a woman who just sort of set her own path. Valerie Taylor... I guess many of us will know, was a very high-profile, is a very high-profile conservationist now. Um, but for many years, she was a sports diver, a spearfisher woman, um, who took on men at in their own game in the ocean in a very male-dominated sport. She fell in love with the number one spear fisherman in the world, the sports diver, Ron Taylor, and together they decided to lay off the killing of fish um, and instead capture them on film, which led to an extraordinary career First with the uh, film *Blue Water, White Death* in the late '60s, and then shooting Australian footage for Steven Spielberg's *Jaws*. Um, and there's lots of incredible sort of stories in this documentary about that period. Um, now she's an 85-year-old woman reflecting on life, um, determined to leave a uh, uh, an account of her life which reemphasizes her. Um, legacy as one not of a fish killer but instead a shark lover and a conservationist trying to save the ocean from um, terrible things moving forward. Um, Sally Aitken has made a kind of a career out of filming these Australian icons. She's done work on Sydney Nolan, she did the Captain Cook the Pacific series with Sam Neill, um, she has done work on uh, Frank Geary and, and the uh, Architects Um, Australian buildings that have taken on their own iconography and with Valerie Taylor she does a similar thing she takes the icon examines how she became an icon and then sort of reverts to capturing the really human side of Valerie Taylor who as an 85 year old still has heaps of energy but um, is sort of you know uh, feeling the physical ailments she decides at the end of the film she decides to go uh, diving in Fiji with bull sharks and the the, the footage is incredible, um, but just getting in and out of the wetsuit is a tough time for the for the the lovely old lady, um, but she manages to do it because of her love for the ocean, her love for the sharks, and the message it will impart and then it kind of sums up playing with sharks as well it 's a very heartfelt. Uh, Documentary that pushes through some ugly moments, some of the footage that was captured um, of what happened to great white sharks uh, in the wake of Jaws when they were seen as monsters and had to be killed. It's a bit tough to watch now, but it has to be watched so it never happens again. So we learn from it. So Valerie Taylor playing with sharks. There's been a lot of Q&A screenings of this already. Um, It's in wide release now and is absolutely worth seeing.
0: Simon, let's just have a very brief chat about a new series called Blindspotting. What
1: happened? Baby, I'm so sorry. I found him flushing these.
2: Do you want me to get you a toothbrush or toiletries? No, I'm going to summer camp, baby. I'm going to jail. I don't know. What is our online banking password? Baby, I'm not going to yell that on the street.
0: Happy New Year. Trish is in her late 20s and comes home one night, again on New Year's Eve. There's something of a trend here in the shows I'm talking about this week. But she comes home on New Year's Eve to find that her partner, Miles, is being arrested by the cops. He's been hiding some criminal activity from her, and he's been busted for it. Without any money coming in to support herself or their son, Trish moves in with Miles' mother and sister. The mother's a pot-smoking-free spirit, and the sister's trying to build an online porn startup. It's not the sort of environment that Trish wants to create for her son, but it's going to only be for a couple of weeks. Now, of course, this is a TV show, and we know it won't just be for a couple of weeks. spotting it's a spin-off from a film of the same name. Now, I haven't seen the film, so I can't comment on that with any real insight, but you can come into the series with no prior knowledge, as I did, and have a good time with it. It's a comedy about those left behind by an unjust US legal system. It's not the people committing the crimes, but the family and friends who need to readjust their own lives because of the upheaval caused. Jalen Barron in the lead role as Trish is solid, but the real attention-getter is Helen Hunt, playing her quasi-mother-in-law. We've always seen Helen Hunt on screen as a woman who knows how to hold it together. We've never seen her playing a free spirit like this, and she's an absolute hoot. I don't expect that the show is going to become a series with a great amount of heat behind it, nor do I think it's probably going to be one of your favourites for the year, but I do think it's going to be very reliable viewing for the next couple of weeks, and you could do far worse by checking out Blind Spotting. and that series is
1: currently streaming in Australia on Stan. So lovely to see Helen Hunt back. It was so strange how, in the wake of winning the Oscar for As Good As It Gets, she kind of just sort of settled on... Okay, I've won the Oscar and went off and she did a whole lot of other smaller things. Um, never quite became that big megastar. Maybe the megastar period had gone by then. Maybe she wasn't sort of cut out for that kind of lifestyle. But it's always lovely seeing her on screen and, and seeing her very distinctive acting style. So that's this is a must watch for me. I'm a big fan.
0: Look, I really like Helen Hunt as well. There was a really good interview with her on the WCF with Mark Maron podcast a couple of weeks ago. And mm-hmm. what it sort of seemed like to me was that she had a great deal of success in her life. And this is a situation that I think hits a lot of successful women in Hollywood, well on screens. Helen, at least. At least. Uh, basically she had, had all this success, but her own private life wasn't really going the way that she wanted to. She wanted to be able to start a family and invest time and resources into that. And by investing that time and resources into that, she couldn't work as much. And so basically the Hollywood career started to fade a bit while she reprioritized her life somewhat but she's always been working during all this time as well. And she talks about that during the interview. The one thing I'd say though, is that I hadn't seen Helen Hunt on screen for maybe like 15 years between whatever it is I may have seen her 15 years ago. And so when I saw her appearing on, I think it was like the late show with Stephen Colbert and she just appeared on my screen. I'm like, wait a sec, Helen Hunt. I love Helen Hunt. And suddenly like that sort of came back. But in those 15 years she was away, she's clearly had some sort of work done And I have to say that when, and look, I understand the pressures on women in Hollywood and why they feel they need to get this done. But often if you're somebody like her, who is very expressive in her face and like, there's just so much that you get from a Helen Hunt performance that's very much face-based. When you see with the plastic surgery, like it becomes a really rough watch. It's not the same actress that you kind of want to be watching on screen. I'd like to see Helen Hunt with like a few more wrinkles in her face and actually be like the woman who's sort of aged into who she is, but it feels like she isn't really present on screen. And you do feel that in the show. It's a character that has like all this, as I referred to which she's a free spirit, but she's also a free spirit who's clearly had plastic surgery done. And that just kind of looks weird for the character. But anyway, if you can get past that, which I
1: can't, but you know, I think you have a great time with us still. Dan wasn't a fan, but I certainly love the new Apple TV Plus series, Physical. Um, Annie Wiseman is the showrunner, executive producer, writer of the show. She has... um, (laughs) She has lauded over in the past series like Almost Family, Suburgatory, Desperate Housewives, About a Boy and the Path. We were lucky enough to catch up with Annie from her home in L.A. about this new series about capturing the early 80s women's movement, working with our wonderful Rose Byrne and the iconic TV character who provided unlikely inspiration for Sheila Rubin. Here's Annie.
2: Hi, Simon. Hello, Australia. Hello, Hello Annie. Lovely to talk to you. <laughs> Congratulations.
1: I've, I've done all the interest so we'll jump straight into it. Congratulations I, on this this wonderful wonderful show. I'm so in love with you. it.
2: Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, as a
1: I've got to say every melancholic nerve ending in my body all those memories of growing up mm. as a a teen young man in the 80s were triggered by physical. So thank <laughs> you for that. How does I, I want to ask how does the 80s Uh, represent to American society, make it appropriate to physical? What is it about that decade that made it just the right setting for the show?
2: Well, I'll tell you, what I was really interested in was this transition period. So it was really about the 70s evolving into the 80s. It was like the hinge where Mm. we're at in 1981 in the show. So we're seeing the kind of all the, the promise and idealism of the 60s, like really petering out. And then this new era beginning of Reagan conservative America. So we're watching. It's a it's a big backlash time, right? So it, it's just beginning. And so for 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 me, growing up in San Diego, California, my parents went from Berkeley radicals to Reagan voters, and it was in this hinge time that that happened. So we're seeing just disillusionment. I think with the kind of political um, failings of the late 70s, you know, the sure. Equal Rights Amendment not working out. And we're seeing this backlash and we're seeing this shift. And um, so I was interested in exploring that through aerobics, of course. What else would I explore that through?
1: <laughs> do Well, that's, that's interesting because an observation that I'd like to make is that it it struck me as a time when there was this, this sort of empowered woman's movement coming out of the seventies that ran smack into this sort of cashed up eighties boom economy, yeah. and I think that's where Sheila finds herself.
2: That's exactly right, and I think I think it, it it certainly in this character it came out of feeling like, you know, the the progressive ideals of her husband publicly just weren't were not what she was experiencing at home. So there's yeah. this outward kind of pose that was about equality for everyone and for women, but then at home, you saw these really regressive gender dynamics. And I think she just, this character and a lot of women just felt disillusioned. They felt like, you know what, the movement failed us. Like we need, the independence is gonna come through economic power, through spending mm. power, through any many ways, that's such a betrayal, right? <laughs> of the sixties ideals and the kind of collective, you know, we all rise together. It's like, no, it's not the we decade or the me decade, you know, yeah. and so it becomes about, you know you see the self help movement and you see fitness start to rise and and i think you know on the on the empowering side for women like this was a place where women could have some independence and power you know they they weren't in 1981 it was still un, pretty unheard of for a woman to even get her own small business loan you know without mm-hmm. her husband co-signing sure. <laughs> so they had to find these non traditional spaces to have businesses in and so fitness was one of them And for this character it becomes kind of her her liberation, her unexpected liberation.
1: What I I adore about the show is that it's unironic. I think you clearly love this period too. I don't get that you're taking jabs at at big hair or fluoro colors.
2: No, I mean, you're totally right that we, and this was our, our my other, um you know, I had so many great Aussie collaborators, you know, not only yes. Rose Byrne, but Craig Gillespie because he was really on board with me in creating this kind of gritty texture of the time period. You know, we didn't want to fetishize it. We wanted to, it to be, to look like it It looked, um you know, in a more realistic way yeah. uh, at the time period.
1: With with due respect to our Kate and our Nicole, it's our Rose Byrne who's the, the jewel in our acting crown as far as I'm concerned. What was it about Rose that captured how you would imagine Sheila?
2: Yeah, she just has um, all of the tools to offer. You know, she... You've seen her do so many such a range of roles, you know she shines in these comedic parts. She's a really gripping dramatic actress. so um I've seen her on stage. I've seen her in movies so getting to you know it's like redlining a Lamborghini. I mean this far because she just has so many skills and so getting to see her play a woman who's divided like this character she's kind of playing yes. two parts you know she's projecting one thing in the world and then she's got this other thing kind of hidden and poking through under the surface and yeah well so wanted, it was exciting
1: I want to talk about that in monologue that sort of that duality of her performance that outward persona which is every second it's at the mercy of her inner demons it's, it's a remarkable um, showcase for her
2: it It is. Um, to me, that the goal was to just kind of reflect uh, my own experience of feeling really divided in the world, you know, having to present oneself outwardly and feeling very different on the inside. And so I, I you know, went for it with this script. Um, and then, but you know, I'm a writer, I'm a coward. So I I just know how to write it. And so someone like Rose who could come in fearlessly and 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 perform it. That was something else, and it was really fun to just sort of layer it with her because she brought so much to that inner voice. You know, we would have these sessions where we would record it, and you know, I brought my own dialogue of self-loathing in there, but she really heaped her own on top, and sometimes really shocked all of us.
1: <laughs> well, I want I want to, I want to I do want to raise that because in one episode she drops what I always thought was a very Australian slang term, and if you'll pardon my language here, she uses the word fuckwit. Now, is this a universal term now or did our writing finish the table?
2: Fuckwit was probably her contribution. <laughs> You're probably picking that up because I don't know that I, yeah. So she, she heaped a lot of her own things onto it. And sometimes I would find things, you know, she would say something like, um, yeah, we, we had our little culture and language struggles sometimes, but ah. she's such a chameleon. I mean, she can, um, she just clicks into that American thing effortlessly and, and, um, yeah, she, she has like a terrifying chameleon ability.
1: Yeah, you know? She really does. She's wonderful.
2: And uh, yeah, but maybe that we she slipped a fuckwit in there. That's hilarious. <laughs> um
1: I I want to talk about the aesthetic from the musical point of view. It's so crucial to capturing the the period feel, and I can't believe I'm referring to an 80s set show as, as period, but the music is amazing. It doesn't yeah. feel like there are any second choices. Were the were the rights easy to maneuver?
2: we got really um lucky um getting to um you know go after some great music i mean if you give craig gillespie the opportunity it would just be wall to wall um incredible (laughs) songs start to finish um, because he loves using music to propel the storytelling so that was really exciting yeah we we just we got to we got um to use some great songs from the times work with this extraordinary music supervisor, but then also our composer Isabella Summers from Florence and the Machine. You know, she she brought a lot of texture to it herself as well. So I'm really proud of the way, you know, sound kind of helps uh, locate you in place and time.
1: You'll have to bring out one of those that classic 80s relic, a a soundtrack album, music inspired by Physical or something like
2: that. Yeah, Apple's actually doing. Yeah, Apple's actually doing that. They're they're it's exciting. They're putting out a soundtrack, you know, for her because she's it's yeah. I'm I'm really excited about that. That would be wonderful. Yeah.
1: Speaking of of Apple TV Plus, you've been at the front and center of a of an industry in tremendous flux lately. Not just because of COVID, of course, but also. I guess that fracturing of the traditional big three network landscape and the, the power surge by streamers like Apple TV plus as a, as a key industry creative, what's the industry like for you now?
2: Well, I've been, like you said, I've, I've, I started out in the world of those, you know, big behemoth broadcast entities and, um, and now the landscape is is so different, and that, for me, it's just been one of opportunity. I mean, having the opportunity to tell a story like this, I never would have had the courage to, probably even write it ten years ago, let alone get it made at this level with these mm. kinds of resources. So I just think it's a time of really great opportunity. It it has been for me, and I've I've been um, the creative freedom and and the and the, you know, creative resources are. Um, It's it's um, it's kind of it's been a like dream come true for me with this project.
1: Oh, wonderful! Um, I came out of the first time I saw the first episode, and I said to my wife, "It's the best first episode of a TV series since The Sopranos." That's how much I'm I'm loving this. Um, I've binged it twice (laughs) now, so thank you so much. I was determined. That's
2: our show, our favorite, Rose. And I uh, do bond on both loving that character in that show. And we talk about Tony Soprano all the time for her and trying to kind of make the very female, unapologetically female Tony Soprano happen. So that's very oh, wow. kind oh, of Oh, that's
1: great see. to hear. Um, Physical is out June 18 on Apple TV Plus, wherever you can get it worldwide. Annie Weissman, congratulations and thank you so much for, for joining us on screen. Watching, it's been a pleasure.
2: Thank you so much. So nice to talk to you.
1: Dan Barrett stepping into the fold again to turn the screen-watching middle bit into the must-listen piece of podcasting in Australia every week. Dan Barrett, what's this week's story? So, Simon, I spent a weekend on the couch, and I did something
0: which I wasn't really prepared to do initially, but it sort oh. of led to what's going to be this segment. I sat down and watched all four Lethal Weapon movies. Oh, my goodness. The question I'm going to lay as the foundation for what we're going to chat about here, which is, should one watch the Lethal Weapon movies? So my question to you, Simon, when was the last time you watched any of the four Lethal Weapon films?
1: All right. Um, I I have revisited the first one, which I, is a favourite of mine. Um, pre- and regularly plays on Channel 9 pretty much every third night. Yeah, I know. The yeah. guys love it at Channel 9. That's very true. I think I saw that maybe two years ago. The movies dropped off in quality for me uh, upon their immediate release. I've seen two a handful of times, but not for a long time. And I don't think I ever saw three or four more than once at the movies. Yeah. Look, I mean, that's
0: probably entirely fair. So my own relationship with it is that I've certainly seen the first lethal weapon, like, you know, probably a couple of times, like over the last 10, 15 years, but since the Mel Gibson star started to fade for obvious sort of Mel Gibson related reasons, I haven't really felt a huge amount of drive to check out like Mel Gibson movies. It just hasn't been something which I've had a hunger for by any means. But I've also had just this thing in the back of my mind thinking, well, I remember really liking the Lethal Weapon films. And it came down to that thing of, you know, do you necessarily follow the art or the artist and, you know, all those sort of questions that come up. And people will have their own sort of barometer as to where they want to sit on. And it it changes the course depending on artist to artist. So while I feel that you could probably go and watch a Mel Gibson film from yesteryear, watching a Kevin Spacey film still feels a little difficult for me. So, you know, and. That's going to shift as well. I reckon 10, 15 years from now, I'll probably sit down and watch a Kevin Spacey film and feel comfortable enough with seeing it as the film that it was. But right now, the revelations about Kevin Spacey kind of feel a bit too raw for me still. So I probably can't quite separate it entirely just yet. And Cosby, quite frankly, I don't think I'm watching the Cosby show ever again.
1: (laughs) No, that's never going to happen.
0: This is the thing. So, you know, some lines get drawn. But I think he can go and watch a Mel Gibson film and be able to separate it to a certain degree from some of his very publicly recorded statements. So I sat down to watch it and the first one is an absolute gangbuster. Like it's a cracker of a film. I was so blown away by how good the film was. And I think when you're looking at it from a 2021 lens, I think you forget about some of the elements that were in play for this film. So the first one came out in 87 And the film is very much about two former Vietnam veterans who are now working in the police force. And it's very much about the trauma associated with that. So it's quite evidently attached to the Riggs character played by Mel Gibson. He's a loose wire. He's got his own personal issues where his wife had been killed in a car accident a couple of years prior to the movie. And so you're watching him going through the psychological trauma of that. But it's compounded because he also has the trauma of war coming from behind uh, throughout his history as well. So don't forget the Vietnam War, and they ended in, what, 75? So it was still very um, current when these films were being released. And you see a lot of these cop films from the mid-'80s, and it is very much about that trauma of Vietnam and just the psychological damage of the 70s really sort of reverberating through a lot of these characters' lives. But it's also a time where I think there was a lot of reassessment as to what the role of masculinity is and how that factors in. And especially considering we're talking about like ex sort of war vets who are now sort of finding their way back into society and what does it mean to be a modern man in that kind of a context. And that's kind of where you've got this lethal weapon film happening. So it's a very much a what we know as a traditional buddy cop film now, but it just has this extra layer to it, which is just deeply interesting the further that you get into it. And, I don't know, the further I get away from 1987, the more interesting that as an idea seems to me. But then you've got, like, Lethal Weapon 2, which comes along, and it kind of sheds all that Vietnam stuff, and it becomes just purely the buddy comedy that everyone sort of loved that first one being.
1: Yeah, look, I, I recall very clearly the, the the chasm that exists between number one and number two. When number one came out, the uh, reviews were, were very much focused on um, not just the great chemistry between Danny Glover and Mel Gibson, and the, and the comedic bits that work a treat, but also the darker elements of the screenplay and his PTSD, uh, Mel Gibson's character's PTSD, and and uh, struggle with sort of reintegrating into modern society and being a a good cop when he's clearly a a, a crazed individual and 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 carrying his own burden. Um, Franco Zeffirelli, and I know it's a big leap to make to there, uh, said that when he saw. Uh, Mel Gibson's performance in the first Lethal Weapon and how he struggled with this inner turmoil, he knew straight away that he could play Hamlet and was cast opposite Glenn Close and a great cast in uh, Franco Zeffirelli's version of Shakespeare's play. So um, there's a deep sort of deep-seated uh, mental anguish to the Riggs character that, I, that makes the first film edgier, um, a little bit more dangerous, uh, a little bit more enthralling, that is was, and that gave way to the more comedic elements in the sequels. And that's where I think you're headed with number two.
0: Yeah, so it's the case of number two, because they really have shared all of that Vietnam business from it. And it's kind of just these characters. And quite directly with Riggs, it's dealing with the trauma experience from his wife who'd been killed. Because plot twist, you find out the villains in the second film are the people responsible for the car accident that you know, took her out in her first film, or pre-first yep. film. But that film, it very much plays around with just like the sort of humorous elements of the characters and really just amps and lays into that entirely. When the show, when the film starts getting a little bit more serious towards the end of the film as they actually are dealing directly with how they are emotionally connected to what's been taking place within the film, it becomes such a, much, a stronger film for it. Ultimately, I think League the Weapon 2 is actually a, it's huge fun. It's kind of what you want from a Hollywood cop buddy comedy. It doesn't have the gravity of that first film, but like it's still a mm. very good watch. The third one then comes along and it completely sheds the dramatic elements really and while they try to create some fake drama here and there throughout the film like there's no real personal connection you feel from any of the characters there's a moment towards the end where the Danny Glover character Murtar, inadvertently ends up shooting a friend of one of his kids and so he's kind of dealing with like the emotional sort of fallout from that but it feels fake it doesn't really feel integral to the characters at all and by the time you hit that fourth one like everyone's feeling too old for this shit Uh, Like, clearly everyone's doing it for the paycheck. (laughs) And they introduced this Chris Rock character. And this is kind of what's interesting about that film, which is that there's so much when you watch the film, if you think about the script as it existed before they actually probably went out to Chris Rock, the entire structure of it feels like they were phasing out the Murtar character so they could introduce, like, maybe have Murtar appear in, like, a scene or two in, like, a fifth film. But it seemed very much driven with the idea of teaming up Riggs with, like, a new young cop. But then they overcast it by bringing Chris Rock, who does his own Chris Rock work over the top of this film. And it becomes even
1: quote-unquote funnier and a bit more zany and just becomes completely unwatchable. Chris Rock, I think you're absolutely right, makes number four... um was a terrible disappointment when it came out. It's largely unwatchable now, and and everyone's tried to forget about it as much as possible. Um, We've skimmed over very quickly one of the uh, sort of key elements of number three, which sort of spun the series off into this ridiculously comedic kind of buddy cop comedy element, and that's Joe Pesci, as Leo gets. Um, Never has a more um, dire bit of stunt casting backfired on a series. I thought Joe Pesci, who was... Um, A big deal coming off Goodfellas, the Oscar win, um, making a name for himself in a whole lot of uh, films at that time, uh, both big and small. It was a, um, a terrible decision to try to shoehorn him into the chemistry that Mel Gibson and Danny Glover had. When you've got people like Rene Russo in there, Darlene Love, all trying to do good work. And every time Joe Pesci comes on the screen, he just sucks the energy or, or channels the energy of the scene towards himself. And it was a, a, just a, a, a real misfire for the series and uh, left a nasty taste in the mouth, which impacted how a lot of us went to number four. Leo gets really just typifies exactly what went wrong with that as a film franchise.
0: There's a scene right at the end of the fourth film where Joe Pesci actually does some proper acting and he starts talking about this incredibly silly like moment from his childhood. And I won't spoil it just in case anyone ever goes back and rewatches number four for whatever reason. It's literally the one good scene in that entire film. But he tells, like there's this monologue that he delivers that I was watching it on the couch and I was feeling a bit choked up like it was actually a very emotionally resonant moment the only one that really happens for at least two movies by that point so you know as bad as that character is and as much as how it derails the entire franchise that final scene might be enough to justify his entire existence in the trilogy quarter quarter quadru- what do we call it Quad- quadrilogy <laughs> is that how a word works it doesn't yeah so to get to the original question, should one watch the Lethal Weapon films? If you can put aside the Mel Gibson-ness of it all, which I appreciate for some viewers will be a much bigger task than others. If you can put that part of it aside, I think there's so much you can still get out of the first and second Lethal Weapon films. Totally worth your time. After that, maybe just make that smart decision. And it's, it's kind of like it's 12.30 at night. Should you have another drink? And the answer is no, don't have another drink. Get in a cab and go home. And the same goes for get in a cab. Don't watch Lethal Weapon 3 onwards.
1: Once again, you've brought your wisdom to the middle bit. Thank you, Dan Barrett. I'm going to go off and watch the first one again. I, gee, I love that. That's some great action in it, too. Dick Donner, what a director he is. He could sort of do no wrong at that stage. He was making a lot of good movies. <laughs> big screen watching around Australia Uh, let's have a look at what also is in cinemas this week Uh, My Zoe is a film starring and directed by, and I think written by from memory, Julie Delpy, the great French actress Um, the first half of this film is a very gruelling look at how a mother and father separated, Uh, Richard Armitage plays the uh, British born husband, Uh, Julie Delpy is the wife and mother Um, how they cope with um, a young girl played by Sophie Allo, their daughter, who uh, has gone to hospital and is is in the last stages of her life. Then the film takes a very um, sort of odd turn into the world of science fiction, and without giving too much away, um, there's a cloning element there. I just gave it all away. Um, but the uh, story is not entirely convincing, but never not watchable. These are good actors. Uh, Daniel Brühl plays the Doctor who is um he's trying to get Zoe uh, back uh, and it does raise some questions but kind of gets a little bit too involved with itself in terms of clever storytelling and twisting and turning and non-linear narratives which undoes a lot of the emotional heft that this film might have had but it's an interesting project and an odd one for Julie Delpy to attach herself to but she brings all she can to uh, to the lead role. It's called My Zoe in limited release around the country. Also, is the mole agent. This is a Chilean film, a documentary about a an elderly man who goes into an aged care facility to um sort of undercover to chronicle if there's any abuse going on in there. And what he finds is not only it's a very sweet old age home, but also the people in there are wonderful characters in themselves looking for connection looking for love um, struggling with their own mental health issues uh, but a community that supports uh, one another and is complex in the way it has all come together Uh, it's called the mole agent um, in limited release around australia
0: And there's a couple of special event films that are running around the place as well. So at the Astor in Melbourne, you've got Ken Russell's The Devils, which is celebrating its 50th anniversary. Oh boy, that is a nasty piece of work. At the Cremorne Orpheum, you've got Mulholland Drive, which is playing on Saturday night at 8.30. And then on Sunday, you've got Total Recall from 6 p.m.
1: At the Deck Chair Cinema in Darwin, Journey Beyond Fear is happening. It's a documentary which examines the uh, immigration experience, the refugee experience here in Australia, shot over seven years in Malaysia and Australia. Um, it's a Q&A session at the Deck Chair Cinema in Darwin on Saturday evening. Do go to the website and check that out.
0: Yeah, a fun one over at GOMA on Sunday at 11 a.m. You've got Chaplains Modern Times playing and they're doing a live musical accompaniment.
1: And at the Capri Theatre in Adelaide on uh, the 26th of June. So we're getting in a bit early with this one. It's the Orangutan Project Movie Night. Great charity. Uh, They try to save uh, rainforest and orangutan environments around the world. They're screening the new Lin-Manuel Miranda film In the Heights. 6.30pm at the Capri Theatre, Adelaide on the 26th of June. Go to the website for tickets.
0: Yep, and there's just a couple of TV shows to highlight for the week ahead. Uh, Something that's probably worth mentioning because there'll be a few people sort of curious about this one. Uh, The Good Fight is back in the US next week, but we won't get it in Australia for another week after that and then are fast-tracking it. So it's going to be in Australia six days after the US broadcast. So don't be too concerned about that. Also returning for its seventh and kind of final season is Bosch, which will be debuting on Friday next week. And I'll be talking about that in the review segment of the show. (laughs) You love your Bosch. You love your Bosch, don't you? You've got to watch the Bosch. It's really quite good. But Simon, <laughs> right. let's move on. Let's wrap things out here. And we'll talk about this day in history or this week in history, really. Let's kick off at 19th of June, 1973. A film called the Rocky Horror Picture Show opened in London, starred Tim Curry. My question is, what was the first midnight screening of it? Because that's really the real debut of that film.
1: That's very true. Yes, it didn't find any love until it hit the midnight circuit, that's for sure. June 19, 1954, Tasmanian Devil, the Warner Brothers cartoon character, first appears in the classic cartoon Devil May Hare." And here's my question. Where is the 90s
0: Tasmanian Devil animated series Tasmania, which was a quite little classic that seems to have vanished entirely from streaming? <laughs> Big question, mark I ask... On June 23, 1980, the David Letterman show that was his series pre-late night that ran from, I think it was about nine or 10 o'clock in the morning, and that's where everyone discovered that he was a bit of a gem, and then they cancelled his show on him.
1: In June 24, 1916, Mary Pickford became the first female star to get a million-dollar contract. So um, that's incredible news from back in the day. Huge dollars shows what a huge star she was. This past week was the 25th anniversary of The Cable Guy, which
0: we'd all remember mostly for the fact that it was the first time that a star got a $20 million contract, uh, being one Jim Carrey. Anyway, there's a couple of articles about that floating around this week, all exceptionally interesting. A few birthdays this week. We've got Pauline Cale, who was born on June
1: 19, 1919. That's a lot of 19s. That's a lot of 19s. She's one of the great movie critics of all time. Uh, uh, a young actress one of, who's. T- one of the proponents of the author theory. That's exactly right, along with Andrew Sarris. They had some great debates. One of the great, uh, two of the great film critics of all time. June 20, 1967, Al Nicole Kidman. Well, when I say Al Nicole Kidman, she was born in Honolulu, Hawaii. This is fascinating. On June 21, 1947, both. Meredith Baxter Burney and her on screen husband Michael Gross from the Family Tie series were born. Same day, same year they got married on television. Isn't that incredible? That's incredible.
0: I'm concerned about some sort of twin action, maybe, but let's maybe I've seen too many like 80s films like Big Business. Hey, June 22nd, 1949 was the birth of one Meryl Streep
1: who was born in New Jersey. New Jersey. Big week for actresses, actually. June 23, 1957, Frances McDormand was born. And uh, as I've mentioned previously, Dan Barrett had a birthday. Let's go back to that just in the birthday segment. What a great guy. What a fun birthday it was. I hope you had a great time, mate. Look, when you say fun birthday, this is a man who
0: basically spent most of his day getting a Pfizer vaccine and watching Gremlins 2. So Party guy. Party man. (laughs) Pretty big day. Gremlins 2, what a fantastic movie. I am amazed at how good that film is. Anyway, we're going to talk about that probably on a future middle segment I'd imagine not too far off but before sure. we get to that we need to sign off from this podcast Thank you folks for listening to the screen watching my name is Dan Barrett you can find me on the Twitters at the Dan Barretts you can start your day with my free newsletter it's called always be watching that's located at the website always sorry htcp colon slash slash and you can find there the big stories in TV, streaming, and film. And on Fridays, I do drop the Always Be Streaming newsletter, which recounts the big shows that launched that very
1: week. Read my words over at ScreenSpace. That's screen space that's screen-space.net. Uh, Do visit the Screen Watching Facebook page. There you'll find the Joey Pants interview. You'll also find a terrific interview I did with Sally Aitken, the director of Valerie Taylor Playing with Sharks. Um, and check me out on Twitter at Simon R. Foster One. You can, of course, follow screen watching via your favorite podcast app. If you load it
0: up now and hit the follow button, the podcast will just keep on flowing. Anyway, guys, this has been the end of screen watching. Simon Foster, it has been an absolute pleasure, as always.
1: Thank you, Dan Barrett. Uh, Talk to you next week, mate. Bye-bye.